What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Udi Wertheimer is an independent developer and consultant. He also runs one of my favorite Twitter accounts. In this conversation, Udi and I talk about everything from toxicity in the Bitcoin community to Bitcoin mining, regulation, U.S. versus non-U.S. states, and what he's excited about moving forward for the Bitcoin industry. I really enjoyed this conversation with Udi, and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I first want to talk about our sponsors. First up is LMAX Digital, the number one institutional crypto exchange. They offer clients the deepest pool of crypto liquidity on the planet, underscored by a 100% uptime track record through volatility spikes. They leverage LMAX Group's liquidity relationships and ultra-low latency technology. LMAX Digital is the market-leading solution for institutional crypto trading and custodial services. If you've never heard of LMAX Digital, it's probably because you are not an institution. They have no retail, only institutions. They feature a central limit order book streaming spot Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash, all paired with US dollars, Euro, and Yen. LMAX Digital. They're secure, they're liquid, and they're trusted. Learn more at lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. Again, lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. This episode is brought to you by 8Sleep. 8Sleep is the single best product that I have purchased over the last three years. It completely changed my life. I'm not joking. Pay attention. The Pod Pro cover, which goes over your mattress by 8Sleep, is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can go to 8sleep.com slash pomp to check out the Pod Pro cover, and you save $150 at checkout. They currently ship within the United States, Canada, and the UK. Now, I told you, it changed my life. It helps me sleep deeper, helps me sleep longer. I feel much more refreshed, and I have better energy. You want to know how I have relentless energy every single day? It's because I sleep on an 8sleep. Seriously, go check it out, 8sleep.com slash pomp today. This episode is brought to you by OKX. OKEX has dropped the E to become OKX. Founded in 2017 with a mission to deliver a cutting-edge crypto trading experience, OKX, the world's second largest crypto exchange by trading volume, has since expanded its scope alongside the wider industry, adding features from all corners of crypto. If EX is about exchange, X is about intersections. Cross-chain, cross-functional, cross-platform, an interoperable future that's not siloed into isolated platforms and blockchains. The name change and the new look and feel represent OKX's ongoing move towards decentralized finance. With OKX's decentralized platform and Web3 wallet, MetaX, you have full custody over your crypto. Connect MetaX in your browser or within the OKX app to explore DeFi, NFTs, and play to earning gaming, the world's most powerful crypto exchange. Whether you're just learning about crypto, you're a seasoned DeFi degen, an NFT enthusiast, or a pro trader, you're all invited to a better future. Go check it out today and let me know what you think. All right, let's get in this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, friends. I have no clue where this conversation is about to go, but uh, we have the uh, the infamous Udi here with us. How are you, sir? Hey, what's up? The Udiverse, right here. <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> oh, we decided the Udiverse! <laughs> what uh, did you think of the Bitcoin conference? 
Um, you know, the thing I loved about it the most was that it gave this opportunity for the, you know, a bunch of the people who were around for a very long time kind of built the values of the original kind of structure of this whole thing and put them on stage in front of, you know, 30,000 people who, who, who are the community that they helped build. It was, I think it was really awesome. It was like nice to see that interaction between the old and the new. I loved it. Yeah. I, I, um, I also think it was very, uh, thoughtful in terms of, uh, there were some very commercial aspects. So all the businesses, the expo center, the friggin' fake volcano, right. Um, the, the kind of sports center or game day style, uh, desk, you know, doing commentary, like all that type of stuff, uh, seems super, super commercial. But at the yeah. same time, I know Matt O'Dell and a bunch of folks put together yeah. like three days of an open source, uh, stage. And, uh, to me spoke much more to kind of the, uh, the cypherpunk movement and, and a lot of that. And so, uh, there's not very many conferences that I think could kind of take those two themes, which literally seem at the opposite ends of the extreme yeah. and put them into one conference, have 30,000 people show up and everyone walk away being like, man, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. I think it did a great job showing like both parts, you know, like both sides of this. So that was awesome. What are you most interested in or paying attention to right now in, uh, in kind of the Bitcoin world? Is there something that you're like, Hey, this isn't getting enough attention or, or something you think is maybe more important than people realize? I think that the, um, uh, well, how do I say this without pissing off people? Or should I say it in a way that will piss off people? I'm not sure. So there, <laughs> there's, there's, we have over time like kind of puts ourselves in this corner where um, we refuse to look at anything going on in, in the larger like crypto ecosystem, I feel like, and, and paint it as, as immoral. But really, I think that the very interesting thing coming up is, is the usage of Bitcoin on other chains. Um, I think it, it, there's a lot of potential for growth over there. So, you know, a lot of stuff like, um, you know, various DeFi protocols, lending, borrowing, stable coins, all of this stuff. Or, originally, they used to use ETH as, as the asset that backs everything just because of, you know, convenience and the way that things were built on Ethereum. But I think that these days people use so many other chains like, you know, Solana, Terra, Avalanche, Binance chain, there are a ton of them. And it makes a lot of sense for Bitcoin to be the collateral for those because it's a, it's a neutral asset, unlike ETH, which is very you know aligned with the Ethereum ecosystem. So I think I think that's a very interesting direction for Bitcoin going forward. One of the things that you're talking about, so there's kind of two different things here, right? One is like the mentality uh, mm-hmm. and, and the open-mindedness. I saw uh, Alex Leishman from uh, River. Yeah. He had a, a great thread uh, where he basically said, you know, uh, real talk. There's a new last few years wave of Bitcoin maximalist marketing types who lack deep technical knowledge and simply autistically screech at every non-Bitcoin project. <laughs> you know, well, hot yeah. take to get started on the thread. And then he said, articulately criticizing scammy projects is commendable. Sticking your head in the sand and pretending that nothing but Bitcoin is interesting or disruptive is very low IQ. The maximalist marketers basically take the ICO playbook and apply it to Bitcoin maximalism. If you dig deep enough, you'll realize that a number of these guys used to be ICO scammers. Go figure. Bitcoin is changing the world and conservatism is a feature of Bitcoin, not a bug. However, a dangerous ignorance and dogma is creeping into the Bitcoin space from a small number of loud people who have certainly done very little to contribute to Bitcoin. The core devs and wealthy OG Bitcoiners are almost always way more humble and open-minded than the new maximalist marketer types who are grifting noobs. Think for yourself and resist falling prey to dogma. This is the Bitcoin way. And immediately, you know, it, it was almost like a, 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 um, a bat signal. Like if you're somebody who he was talking about 
and he tweets that, like, what do you immediately do? You jump in the comments and say a bunch of dumb stuff, right? Exactly. And, and it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> thank you so much for raising your hand and explaining it. Yeah. And so uh, I, I think his main point, although there's nuance to the whole thing, it's just like the open-mindedness is really, really important because one of the things that I think is going to send uh, this like toxic Bitcoin maximalist, you know, kind of corner, uh, which by the way, 87% of Bitcoiners own Bitcoin plus another asset, which yeah, absolutely. Is, is a stat that does nobody wants to talk about. Yeah. But your mind's going to be a mental pretzel if <laughs> all of a sudden Lightning Labs and Roast Beef put out Taro, mm-hmm. which is a new protocol that is going to allow for the issuance of stable coins and other tokens on top of Bitcoin. Yep. So are we now going to say NFTs are good only if they're on Bitcoin? Uh, <laughs> altcoins are good only if they're on top of Bitcoin? Yeah. Uh, stable coins are good only if they're on top of Bitcoin? Or, as I know some of these folks, they will say Lightning Labs is stupid, uh, Roast Beef is stupid, uh, you know, uh, Saifedean is stupid, right? They'll go through kind of the whole yeah. thing and they'll, they'll just take every single person in the Bitcoin community and they'll say, these guys are all morons and uh, and they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely have both. We'll definitely have both. And we, and we always have had both, but I think the, the clash is going to become more and more uh, pronounced and visible to people. Uh, yeah, it's it's obviously it's silly. Like, right, if, if you want an NFT, I think most people don't care if their JPEG is on Solana or Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever. Like, it's just you care about the JPEG and the community around that. You definitely don't care about the technicals. And if you're going to say that JPEGs are only good if they happen to be on Bitcoin, then it's I think it clearly doesn't make sense. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. That narrative is going to collapse because the more visibility there is on this thing, it's going to be more clear to people that it's untrue. And, you know, you you, you said on this thread there was um, this note about, you know, the OGs and the original builders were much more humble. And I think it's true. You know, like when I talk to people who aren't necessarily very prominent on Twitter, but you know, have been building with Bitcoin for many years, uh, they almost always own other assets. Like almost, you know, it's 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 almost obvious because, you know, they find it interesting and they do. They just can't talk about it because there's this small group of people who will ostracize you if you dare talking about owning other stuff. There's an individual, I'm not going to say who they are, very, very well known in the Bitcoin community, very mm-hmm. well respected. Uh, I had dinner with them one time and they said, uh, uh, you're free. You're lucky. You're free. Right. And, and right. I said, what do you mean? And they basically were, were making the point that like nobody thinks that you don't have intellectual curiosity. Nobody thinks that you're not open minded. Nobody thinks that you don't look at this other stuff. They're like, for me, I have to do it in secret. I have to do it privately. Yeah. I, I'm not allowed to. If I do it, I'll get absolutely you know torched. Yeah. But they were like, but you already ripped the bandaid off. Yep. And yep. I think that that's it goes back to this idea that the silent uh, or I'm sorry, the loud minority, uh, they, they do not have the long term support. Right. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately what ends up happening is, uh, again, I think tarot is going to be the, the camel uh, that, that or the thing that breaks the camel's back. Right. In the sense yeah. of if there are now altcoins on top of lightning, are they good or bad? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough question. That's a tough question. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing we like, you know, people are so talk so much about free markets and capitalism, but they end up being very much in favor of central planning sometimes, it seems like, you know, at least the toxic Bitcoin maximalist side of things. What, what's your take on real Bitcoiners? Is there such, like, is there a definition of a real Bitcoiner? Yeah, so, you know, that's actually really interesting. I went to an avalanche conference in Barcelona a couple of weeks ago. Shame! Yeah. The Shame! Avalanche. It was even worse. I even dared to speak at the conference. And Shame! I know, I know. 
And you know, you see people who were, um, who were, there was, before I went on, my talk was about Bitcoin, right? And before I went on, the, the, the Avalanche team made this announcement about how they're going to make it easier to bridge Bitcoin on Avalanche. And I noticed that was the, the first time that the entire audience applauded because it turns out that all of those crypto people are, you know, most of them are very much Bitcoiners. Um, they own Bitcoin maybe even as the main, um, you know, main part of their portfolio. Uh, that's, that's very common in the crypto scene. And, you know, it's, it's only really the small group of Bitcoin maximalists who think, or, you know, you can be a Bitcoin maximalist if you want, but the toxic Bitcoin maximalists who think that um, crypto people hate Bitcoin. It's absolutely not true. And I would say that a Bitcoiner is, you know, it's a very simple definition. It's someone who owns Bitcoin, <laughs> you know, that's, it's very simple. There's still many, many people in the world who don't own Bitcoin and we need to get to them. But there are, what, 100 million, 150 million Bitcoin holder in the world. So, you know, they, a lot of them are pr pretty fine with using other chains. Most of them are. 87% of them, according to the Grayscale yeah. Bitcoin Investor <laughs> Study. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then how do you think about... Uh, something like Doquan with uh, with Terra and backing their stablecoin UST with Bitcoin. Like to me, right? What I'd look at that and I say, uh, we're watching a stablecoin adopt the Bitcoin standard, and if they end up doing this correctly, it will create the playbook for central banks, stablecoins, etc., to then all go be able to do the same thing. Very similar to how Michael Saylor created the playbook for public companies yep. to put Bitcoin yep. on their balance sheet. Uh, it seems like that is not a 100% uh, accepted viewpoint or framework by uh, by, by maybe this uh, this loud minority. Yeah, yeah, and that that was you know so surprising to me because when I first heard about you know Do Kwan first made these claims about how he's going to acquire some Bitcoin or LFG is going to acquire some Bitcoins and and they were very big claims and I was really surprised how very few people in the Bitcoin space were talking about this. Because it looked like this is, you know, this is very big news. This guy is gonna end up with more bitcoins than than Sailor potentially. Um, so, you know, I I started talking to people, and I realized that the reason they don't talk about it is because they don't, you know, they don't know anything about it. Literally nothing about how something like UST works. But they have a very clear opinion about how it's a scam and immoral and a terrible thing. So they literally don't know anything about it. Anything. They don't know what it is. They don't know how it works. They don't know what keeps the peg, if it does. There are many risks about UST, by the way, but they don't know how to explain them. <laughs> so I thought, okay, this will be interesting conversation to have, to talk to Do Kwan, you know, have uh, spaces about it, but um, do it in a very basic way so that Bitcoiners could catch up, get up to speed. And I th we had the spaces, I think a lot of people tuned in, and... You know, I try to be neutral. I try to be like, yeah, you know, uh, what you're doing is obviously risky. <laughs> it might not work. People might have exposure to the stablecoin and end up, you know, losing money. Um, or maybe it does work. But the one thing that I find very interesting in it is that Bitcoin is a very, very good fit in that use case. Whether it works out or not, Bitcoin is a very good fit in there. And we suddenly have a new way to use Bitcoin. That's awesome. And, and definitely, I think that more people will, will try to do the same thing. And, you know, I get that people say, you know, UST is uh, maybe risky. Maybe it will not work out and people need to be careful. I agree with that. Uh, but it seems like the thing that strikes me really odd is we seem to be okay with, um, you know, a dictator adopting Bitcoin for his country. Uh, we seem to be okay with... 
Russia using Bitcoin to evade sanctions. We seem to be okay with people buying heroin and ODing and dying using Bitcoin. We're fine with all of those things. They're great. <laughs> But if someone dares to start a stable coin, <laughs> then that's, that's an attack on freedom. And that doesn't make any sense to me. I think, you know, I'm, I'm not here to judge the way that people use Bitcoin. I don't understand everything about the world. I don't know what's going to be a good way to use it or not. I think people should use it however they want. And if a new use case arises and people find a new way to use Bitcoin in a massive way like this, you know, like acquiring three to $10 billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, that's obviously good. That's obviously good. I hope it works out. And if it doesn't, we learn something, you know? That's great. What's your general approach to like how, so, so this idea of like, I'm not here to judge how people use it. Is there a way somebody could use Bitcoin where you would say like, oh, I, I wish they wouldn't do that? You know, I think... Look, you know, there are things that I think uh, people would agree that they are uh, universally evil, right? And I hope that people don't use Bitcoin that way. But really, the, 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 the truth is, that's why we like Bitcoin. People can use it however they want. No, one, <laughs> no one's going to ask us. You know, one of the interesting things I found out when I had discussions with people about this use case of Terra, and people told me, like, well, we shouldn't support this. And I was like, look, they're not asking us. They're going to do it. <laughs> you know, they're not asking us if we're supporting this, if we think it's a good idea. They're going to do it. They are doing it. And, and it really mostly makes us look like fools, I think, if we sit there on our, <laughs> on our little couches and say, no, this is not a good way to use Bitcoin. We're against it. We're, just gonna, we're setting ourselves up for failure, right? Because we know that Bitcoin can be used however people want to use it. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's fascinating to kind of think through this, right? Because I would make the argument that what Michael Saylor is doing uh, is he's basically issuing assets mm -hmm. to acquire more Bitcoin. And mm -hmm. uh, I obviously think that it's incredibly um, uh, innovative. I mm -hmm. think that he is a pioneer. Uh, I tend to think that he will go down as one of the best capital allocators on Wall Street uh, over the last you know, 20, 30 years. Um, and doesn't come without risk, right? Especially yep. now when there's, you know, some slight leverage in there and, and the whole bunch of different things. Uh, but so far, so good. I think that uh, he's done a great job articulating his ideas uh, publicly, uh, explaining, hey, we have a cash flowing business and also a treasury strategy and, and kind of how he thinks as a public company CEO who's just been around a long time, right? And yep. understands uh, not only strategically what to do, but also how to communicate those ideas, I think is a key piece to it. If you then go and you take a look at uh, many private companies, they're doing very similar things. So I would argue that many of these private companies that are issuing some sort of equity to investors and then using that investor's money to go buy Bitcoin on their balance sheet, right? Yep. They also are issuing an asset to go and, and to buy it. Yep. And uh, I, I hear the argument that the public uh, sector has certain rules and requirements and, and uh, transparency and, and uh, reporting regulations, et cetera. The private markets have some of that, but nowhere near what it would take to, to operate as a public company. Uh, and then you have somebody like Do Kwan, um, which he personally isn't doing it, right? It's the uh, the, the foundation. Uh, but again, they've issued an asset and they are going ahead and, and they're acquiring it. And when, when you think about that, uh, it's a very nuanced, weird argument to make of, oh, if you issue one type of asset, it's okay, but if you issue another type of asset, it's not okay, Yeah. right? Yep. And I think actually if, if I was to switch around and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to be a critic of it, I don't think making a moral argument is the right argument to make. Yep. I think your point about the right argument to make would be that it's a risk argument. 
Yeah. And so this like appeasement or, or, or attempt to uh, kind of um, uh, make this moral argument, I think actually just sounds stupid. Yep. Right. Yeah. Because it, th- there is no morality in the issuance of assets. Ultimately, what happens is uh, it's a risk. And you can now make an argument of, are they disclosing all of the risks? Are they not? Do we actually understand, uh, meaning the the, the non-terror uh, community, do we understand what the risks are? Do they understand what the risks are? All that stuff, I think, is fair uh, debate. But to me, that's more science and math yep. uh, uh, type argument where it's valuable, right? Either it's true or it's not. When you kind of do this like fluff, oh, we're going to make this moral argument, uh, I tend to think that you move to moral arguments when you don't have the ability to make valuable arguments. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, and then it becomes a religious debate. Correct. And the reason why people want to participate in the religious debate is because they never can be proven wrong. Yep. Right. (laughs) And so then you can yell and scream all day long and you basically get to uh, then claim moral superiority on somebody, uh, which just is ridiculous. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Uh, You know, and by the way, I in that spaces that I did with Doe Quarren, you know, I asked him, you know, a bunch of the hard questions. It wasn't very original. I knew the hard questions because many other people asked them before. But, you know, he was very, very honest and very open about everything. He said, yeah, you know, the. You know, one thing that attracts people to UST today is the 20% um, or close to 20% interest rate that they get. And, you know, he was very open about it. Like, yeah, you know, it's it's obviously not um, not scalable and it's it's not going to stay 20% forever. It's going to drop down. And there's definitely a question of what happens when it goes down and, and how it happens. And it's obviously very open on, on the risks for the UST depegging from the dollar. All of those things are, you know, they're very, very open about them. And then, yeah, you have to evaluate if you if you're okay with that risk or not, and every person can make that decision on their own. Uh, I myself do not really uh, have any exposure to USD, to be honest, but, um, you know, people can choose what they want. So, you know, it's, um, it, it seems like a very easy, <laughs> very easy decision to make. Not sure why there's even this need to, you know, if you don't want it, don't buy it, move on. <laughs> like, why, why do you even want to talk about it <laughs> if this is, if you think that this is not a, a good risk to take. The, the other thing that uh, I find very troubling is uh, the inability or uh, lack of desire of uh, conversation. So this whole mm-hmm. idea of, uh, you know, somebody says, hey, I'm going to use Bitcoin in some way and immediately getting screamed at scammer, fraud, <laughs> you know, like all, all the nonsense, right? Yeah. And nobody stops to say, well, how does it work? Yeah. Right? Yeah. What, yep. what exactly, why are you making that decision? Right. Yeah. Uh, and you may, if you have that conversation, come to the conclusion that you agree, that you believe it is a scam, that it is a fraud, that it is whatever. But coming to that conclusion without actually talking <laughs> to the person doing it is like all time laugh out loud funny. To yeah. Me, right. And I can say this as somebody who, when I saw him do it, I messaged him. I did a call. I learned about it. I wrote a whole thing, say, hey, is this accurate? Then yep. got feedback from people, then did a podcast episode with them and said, listen, explain this to me. And I yep. got to the end and I said, to you, similar to your point, there's risks here, just like there's risks in all of this. But I think that this is a net positive and will pioneer a new potential use case as Bitcoin as collateral, right, for stable coins. Yep. Now, yep. maybe I'm wrong. That's fine, right? I'm very clear that I didn't go buy Luna or, or do any of this stuff. I don't own UST or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But- it's interesting. I'm watching it. I'm paying attention. Yep. Yep. But the people who don't go have the conversation, 
I literally have more information than they do. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're telling you you're wrong, but they don't know what you're talking about <laughs> because well, they didn't. <laughs> not only can they not, they, they, they just don't have the same information. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so like, I, I really respect people who go and say to somebody, Hey, what you're doing, I don't understand. I'd like to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. And they go and they understand it. And then they turn around and then they say, okay, you know what? I don't think this is going to work. Yeah. Fine. Well, the market's going to decide whether it works or not, yeah. right? And if people want to take the risk and and have the ability to allocate their capital that way, that's their free choice. Yep. But the the whole idea of like shaming people for how yeah. they invest their money is the most anti-Bitcoin thing I've ever heard. By the way, if you don't agree, rather than complaining, which is what politicians would do, if you are actually emotionally, psychologically invested in trying to see Bitcoin do all these great things that we all think it could do. Then build the alternative, right? Well, build the alternative or educate these people. Yeah. But don't do it, don't shame them, right? Yeah. Instead say, hey, have you thought about this point? Have you thought about this risk, et cetera? And that's not what I think is happening right now, right? No, <laughs> no, it's not. No, I think people just don't, you know, they don't understand what it is. You know, I think one of the common uh, arguments that I get from people is that, um, you know, something like QST and, and, and the many other, you know, digital assets are are bad because they break security laws. And there are two things that really bother me with that. One is, I don't understand how the, you know, how the Bitcoin mindset went from being, you know, free market and building things that that are supposed to improve the structure of the market right now to just saying, well, it's illegal, so we're not going to touch it. That's, I don't understand how that happened because that, that didn't used to be the case. But also, you know, I understand, you know, I'm not, so I'm not American. I'm here visiting the studio, but I don't live here. And, and Welcome. The, yeah, yeah, it's awesome. It's been an awesome week. And, you know, the, the, the security laws in the U.S., I understand if some Americans like them. I, if, I don't care about them. <laughs> I'm not an American. You know, I, don't, I couldn't care less. So I think, you know, if... if so, so By the way, so are like 7.2 billion people around the world. They also aren't American yeah. and don't give a shit about American exactly. security laws. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, most of the world <laughs> doesn't care about the U.S. security laws. So if, you know, if Americans want to stay in that kind of regime, then that's fine. I don't, like, maybe it's the right thing to do. I, I don't know. I don't, it's none of my business, but I think for, for everyone else, it's very obvious. They're not going to avoid some investments just because the U S security law is in, incompatible with them. That that's, <laughs> I don't care. As an American, I really care about security. <laughs> right? yeah. But the other 7.2 billion people around the world, they don't care yeah. right? to your point. Yeah. 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 Well, and of course, I mean, you know, if, if those, uh, you know, if those other currencies and other assets and whatever get um, get in trouble because of U.S. security laws, then of course that has implications for international people too. But I think long term, going forward, I don't care. So, how do you guys <laughs> think the maxi scenario plays out in the future? Right? It's because in my mind, you know, maybe it's five or ten percent, but most of Bitcoiners aren't really that kind of toxic mm-hmm. maxis, right? They whether they own other stuff or they don't, they don't shame people, they don't do these things. So, do you guys think that? By the way, that just self corrects. To- toxic yeah. is just another word for asshole. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right. Yeah, like, yeah. like I think that I'm now officially rebranding yeah. toxic maximalist as just no, asshole. you're being an asshole. Yeah, you're an asshole. You, yeah. you can be a kind maximalist. You can be a rational maximalist. You can do all that type of stuff. Yeah. But wearing the badge of like, I'm an asshole in every other context in the world, whether it's your personal relationships, business, investing, anything else 
is not a sustainable good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, there's plenty of Bitcoin maxis that are just quiet about it, right? That just only own Bitcoin or whatever it is and don't say some anything. of the or they the, just say, I believe that you should only should yeah. you should only own Bitcoin. I think it works for it. me. But they don't bully people for having other interests, yeah. you know? Yeah. So does this yeah. just self-correct over time where we, we, we get to a world where it, you're basically looked down upon even more and more and more until it self-corrects and we don't have anyone like that? Cancel culture ends when the cancelers get canceled, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and that's that's the path that we're heading on here is that you now are at 87% of Bitcoiners own something else. It used to be 100% of Bitcoiners only own Bitcoin. There was nothing else to own really, right? And now it's all the way to 87%. Eventually, I think that the, the toxicity is going to become a smaller and smaller percentage yeah. because what you're doing is you're expanding the total pie and more and more people that come in, they're not going to have the appetite for that type of uh, mentality where you're, you jump on the internet and yell and scream and, and go crazy all day long. Like it, it's just not the way to operate in life. And I would actually argue that it's anti-Bitcoin, right? From an ethos standpoint. Bitcoin is all about anyone from anywhere in the world can use this system. It's apolitical. It's accepting of everyone, regardless of who you are, where you come from, what your education level is, what language you speak, how you grew up, any of that stuff. But then there's this little small group of people who actually end up taking the completely different approach. If you do not agree with every single thing that I agree with and do exactly what I say for you to do, I'm going to shame you. Yep. Yeah, there's this hilarious video from the Bitcoin conference. There's a bunch of people on stage and they were trying to talk about other currencies, um, probably in a bad way. So they asked, they kind of asked the, the audience to raise their hands oh, if any of them own ETH. And the expectation from the, the panel, it seemed like, was that, you know, no one will raise their hands. Everyone will shrivel into their chairs. Okay. Even if they do own ETH, they will not say anything <laughs> about it. And almost the entire audience is raising their hands proudly. And the panel was, you know, kind of shocked about it. And, and, and I think, so I think it's already happening. I think it's already like people are not as ashamed as they used to be to talk about those things. And I think, I think, you know, the, the cancelers are already on, well on their way to getting canceled, I think. How do you yeah. think about how Ethereum fits in um, cryptocurrencies in the world? I've Does never been an Ethereum or? fan uh, and I'm not an Ethereum fan now. I think, you know, I think that... Um, the interesting thing about Ethereum, I think it kind of chooses all of the bad trade-offs and puts them in one place. So it's kind of like, you know, Bitcoin focuses on being very reliable and decentralized and, and neutral. And Ethereum tries to adopt some of that, also adds some, you know, centralization. Of course, we know that, that, that ETH is an asset that has changed a lot over the years and will continue to change over the years. Um, so it feels to me they inherit Bitcoin's inflexibility and, and, and slowness to adapt, which for Bitcoin is a good thing. But Ethereum has to compete against all of those other smart contract platforms that are very fast, not, not just fast technically in the way they work, but also fast to adopt, fast to change. Um, and Ethereum can't do that. Like every, we're still waiting for Ethereum 2.0 for like three, four, four years. And they're always fighting the, you know, the, the war of two years ago. So I think it's just a bad set of trade-offs. I much prefer something like um, Solana, Avalanche, BNB Chain, a bunch of others, because they can adapt very quickly to, to the way the market changes. Um, they don't pretend to be decentralized, so they don't have to you know, do everything slowly. So I think it's better. I think there, I think most people, you know, most people when they want to buy an NFT, they want to take a loan or whatever, they don't care if the infrastructure is is semi-decentralized or not. They just want it to work. So 
Well, and it goes back to this idea that like most things in the world don't need to be decentralized. Right. Right. Yep. If you really think about, I think every Bitcoiner, whether you're on one extreme of the end or the other agrees that proof of work provides for decentralization and secures the network. And uh, there's a very specific reason why Bitcoin needs to be decentralized as it gains global adoption. And it's important that we keep it decentralized. Yep. Many of these other use cases for technology, right? Whether you call it a blockchain, a database, whatever, they're actually not pursuing the highest degree of security, uh, you know, as like the ultimate goal in, in terms of decentralization. They're pursuing performance. Yep. And I always use Amazon as the example. Like imagine if, if uh, Jeff Bezos was like, I'm going to build the most efficient company in the world and I'm going to do it decentralized. <laughs> like, like, no, that's not how it works. Like, what do you do? Yep. He built a super centralized, hierarchical structured <laughs> business yep. that literally spends all of its time from a command and control, centrally planned, drive efficiency. Yep. And they get immense performance out of that. Yep. And so ultimately many of these other things are going to end up being centralized regardless of how you cut it because they need the performance. That's how they're going to compete. And it just feels like those two things are so different that when we compare, you know, Bitcoin versus whatever, it's like trying to say like should I buy oil or Amazon stock? Like sure they're both assets you could buy, but like it's not Amazon versus Shopify, it's Amazon versus oil. Right, yep. that doesn't really make that much sense. Yep, yep, yeah. I think yeah, exactly. They they just you know if you want to build a business, this isn't <laughs> this isn't the world's decentralized infrastructure. This is a business, you know. And if you want to build a business, it needs to be efficient. It needs to be efficient technically and also efficient as a business in a way that you know, like Ethereum just takes. It's very difficult to 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 lead it, right? Um, so so as a if if you were to try to to see Ethereum as a business, it would be you would probably say that it's a very inefficient business, I think. So yeah, um, that's the way I think about those things. And you know, we're all like, we're all fine with, I, you know, I took an Uber to get here, right? Uh, I think a lot of people are Shame. okay with- Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, you know? Because for some reason, like, what am I supposed to hate things now that are subsidized by VCs? Like, why? I don't know if it works. I don't so, care, I just want to get here. I don't <laughs> I don't make a statement about how VC economy works. I just we're going to actually, the th this entire episode, what we're going to do is we're just going to rebrand things. So if you say you're toxic, <laughs> that means you're an asshole, right? Yeah. I like ass-coiner. If- if you hate VCs, we're now going to call them risk capital, right? right. Because guess what? If you want to do something, you, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to your parents, to your friend down the street, <laughs> the bank? None of them are going to give you money to do yeah. this. The entire job of the venture capital industry is to risk capital on shit that shouldn't work. But if it does, it'll be really valuable. Yep. And so this whole idea of like, quote unquote, VCs are bad. Sure. There's bad people in every industry. By the way, yep. have you seen Wall Street? Right? Like, like there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of bad people there. But guess what? If you want to buy a stock, you're paying Wall Street to help you do that. Yep. Right. And so this whole thing just ends up being this weird, weird situation where it's like, maybe we don't need all the extremes in life. Mm -hmm. Like we would be better off just saying, hey, we probably need some risk capital, especially really, really early on from people who that's their job is to do this. And they have the uh, uh, ability to underwrite risk. They have the ability to uh, allocate lots of capital, et cetera but we probably don't want them to do everything. Yeah. So we actually, maybe we do want some of individuals to participate. Maybe we want some corporations to participate. Maybe we want some users to participate, whatever. But like saying that we want zero of anything, of any of those groups is bad. Yeah. And I think the knock against venture capital historically probably was not their fault, but more regulation in the United States is that the average person was at zero. 
Mm-hmm. So the average person couldn't invest in these deals and venture capitalists could rather than say like, Oh no, those people are bad. I think what we should say is like, let's open it up so that yeah. everyone can participate. Yeah. Right. And you know, whether people liked it or not, a lot of the ICO stuff was trying to do that. Right. It, was deemed, I think rightfully so given the way that it was and what the rules were unregulated. Right. And so obviously uh, that's pretty much been pushed outside of the United States and, and uh, gone elsewhere. But, but I think that this whole mentality of like zero sum ends up being a really bad way to view the world. Right. It's like, can we actually have a more of an abundance mindset and say, Hey, if they can participate rather than say, no, we don't like them. Just say, how do we get everyone to be able to participate? Right. Right. Yep. And yep. to me, that feels like it's a much more sustainable thing and, and also a less um, uh, kind of conflict, controversy-driven, like, this is the boogeyman, and, uh, <laughs> and we need somebody to yell and scream about. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, there was some, in the Bitcoin history, there was a lot of this ethos of, you know, we kind of needed an enemy, and, and Bitcoin was a way to to fight against maybe the government, maybe Wall Street, and and I think especially if you've been around since then, then you know that we won. Like, we, from being an internet-based joke, we turned into a force that no one can ignore. We won. And we don't need to, <laughs> we don't need to pretend to fight people anymore. You know, like, uh, everyone knows that Bitcoin is a very significant thing. It's not going away. It's going to continue to change the world. Everyone agrees. We don't need that, you know, that fake enemy to, to, to bring new people in. What we need now is to find why, uh, you know, the next 100 million, the next 500 million, the next billion people will get into Bitcoin and just give them what they need and what they want in order to onboard. We don't need to, to, scare, to scare them about the boogeyman because it's not, it's not, it's not the case anymore. We already made the world better. Let me ask this question because I want to uh, provide as fair of a uh, 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 debate as, mm-hmm. we, as we can. What do you agree with? The, this uh, small, loud minority, what do you agree with that they say? So I think um, that's a great question. I think, and you know, I considered myself part of that group for a long time. And, and I think that um, the focus on keeping Bitcoin uh, this neutral thing that isn't owned by anyone and, and encouraging things like self-custody where it's possible and where it's, and where it's useful to users. It's not, it not always is, but where it is, encouraging it, encouraging this idea of self-sovereignty, I think that's, I think that's great. And that's important for Bitcoin's future too. Um, there needs to be a certain group of people who are very focused on that um, and we don't want them to disappear. Uh, however, we also need to, to, to understand that for most people in the world, they're not here for ideology. They're going to use Bitcoin because it solves a problem for them, not because they're ideological about it. And so, so having the ideologues on board is great. But we have to understand that they're not going to be the majority. They're not going to be the ones who, who, who push this forward from now on because, because it's, it's, we're just at a different scale now than we used to be. When you think about uh, regulation and Bitcoin mining, what, what are your thoughts there? It seems like uh, maybe Bitcoin mining with the whole ESG stuff, Peter Thiel obviously took a pretty big swing at it at the conference saying that ESG is equivalent to CCP, uh, which <laughs> yeah. we were talking earlier is like a great meme. Yeah. Um, what, what's your general sense about mining, ESG, and, and then the regulation that may or may not come? Yeah, I mean, so again, I'm not American. 
uh, it's none of my business to intervene in, in you know, in American uh, policy decisions. Uh, I do think that generally speaking, it would be a mistake for any country to to try to ban uh, Bitcoin mining. Um, and I think we've seen that with you know with the attempts in China and the attempts in Europe. They they they're either unsuccessful or they just hurt the economy. You know, so so I think that. Um, I think yeah, I, th- I I think it's a mistake, and and if you know if the way to go is with cleaner energy, I'm 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 obviously supportive of that, and and I think that there are a bunch of a bunch of experiments in this area, and and maybe they you know maybe they succeed, but I don't think that banning it is going to help anyone. It's just going to hurt the the countries which choose to do it. Yeah, I agree. What other questions you guys got? If the U.S. decided not to accept Bitcoin or kind of adopt it in the manner that other countries are doing it. What is the reaction like? Do other countries just get so far ahead that the U.S. can't keep up, or how does that demographic work? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I wouldn't imagine that the U.S. is going to be the first or among the first to do those things anyway, right? It's probably going to be way, way down the line, and and we're going to see other smaller jurisdictions experiment with it first, um, you know, like we already are, already are, and it's probably going to continue for quite a while. Uh, and that's fine. I think you know, Bitcoin might not immediately solve uh, the same problems for Americans as, as it can for for other countries. So it's fine if if the U.S. isn't the first one to do it. Um, but yeah, down the line, I think you'll see. You know, in in all fields of life, people become more mobile and they're willing to move to the place that they're going to get the best benefits and and that fit you know the best way to what they need and want to do. So yeah, you're just gonna see people move over and businesses move over to to the countries that are more supportive. Uh, in, in this case, for Bitcoin. Joe, what do you got? Yeah, that, I mean, that was my question too around what kind of what how this plays out. I guess I'll move to the uh, uh, ETF. What do you oh, think yeah. happens with the ETF? That's a good one. <laughs> oh man, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, it's so unfair. It feels like right, like. <laughs> Why do we have the silly futures ETFs and we don't have a spot ETF? I don't know. It's I mean, protection. I, yeah. It, <laughs> well, let's let the stack goes public. Yeah. The, the, yeah. It's all uh, about protections. Yeah. I. I mean, I don't know. Again, I don't look <laughs> as a non-American. I don't like. I can buy a bunch of other ETFs. You know, <laughs> I don't have to buy <laughs> yeah. the American one. Um, I don't know. I don't know why it is. Obviously, like people who are you know who are invested in something like um, you know like the Grayscale Fund. Um, that's that's a, that's a real problem. It seems silly. It seems silly to me. But um, I just I can all, all I can say is I hope it gets resolved. I don't know. When we've got a a couple of charts, you won't be able to see them from where you're sitting. But just trust me that I tell you what they say. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 they're on the the correlation. They're, there's really just one. Um, it's the correlation between Bitcoin and the Nasdaq. Mm. And uh, on this chart, uh, there's a guy Lawrence McDonald who says uh, since 2020, Bitcoin tied at the hip with the Nasdaq 100 index. 40 day yeah. correlation between the two reached a record uh, uh, in recent days. And then he uses a quote from a Bloomberg article that says. Uh, uh, increase uh, in the correlation further erodes the argument that Bitcoin works well as a diversifier, one that's been held up by proponents as a key to its appeal. And so when you start thinking about Bitcoin today, um, one of the things that's interesting in this chart, uh, which you can't see, is that it basically the correlation is uh, positive and negative. He's going green, red, green, red, green, red, right? And really it ends up showing that it was non-correlated. Mm-hmm. But pretty much since, uh, let's see, what is the date here? Pretty much since, uh, I don't know, two years ago, year and a half ago, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, it's all green. It's yep. positively correlated, right? Yep. Since 2020 and uh, in a significant, significant way. 
um, to now it's at an all-time high. Um, is that because the economic environment changed? Is that because there's more like Wall Street institution people and this is a risk asset to them and they treat that just like their tech stock? Like, wh- why do you think that's happening? I think that's uh, it's precisely because of the institutionalization of Bitcoin and, and, and the acceptance of Bitcoin as an asset that's appealing for institutions since exactly around that time of, of mid-2020. Um, and, you know, there was this, maybe it was a kind of the sailor and microstrategy things and maybe it was a bunch of other um, things, but eventually there was this green light for a bunch of institutions to just jump in and, and get on board and that means, you know, when they need to cover other positions, they're probably going to need to cover Bitcoin too. And the other way around, when, they, when they're going risk on, then they're probably going to acquire more Bitcoin. And you know, when I think this is, I, I think this is a, an anomaly. I don't think it's going to stay that way. And I think, you know, when I think it's going to change is when more and more crypto protocols adopt Bitcoin and start using it. So what we need is more, you know, other sources of big money that come in and see Bitcoin as something that's useful for them, not just the Wall Street institutions, but also maybe, you know, the crypto protocols from the rest of the world. And I think that could balance things a lot um, and, and, and maybe bring us back to to being a decorrelated asset, which, which I'm sure will happen eventually because mm-hmm. there are, a bunch of people who will realize that Bitcoin is useful for them other than just, you know, fi- financial institutions. But it'll take time. And, but that's definitely one of the reasons why I think, you know, if someone, again, not that it matters if we do or do not support something like Terra acquiring Bitcoin, it doesn't matter, they're going to do it anyway. But it's why it's, I think it's positive. Either way, whatever happens, I think it's positive that we have this completely, entirely different field who is very much more aligned with our values than, than you know, Wall Street institutions are, um, gets more Bitcoin, holds Bitcoin for the long term. I think that's awesome for us. Yeah. It, the idea of financialization of Bitcoin, I think, uh, in my opinion, is inevitable just because yep. as it grows in size, uh, it provides the same benefit to a Wall Street hedge fund, a bank, as it does an individual, a public company, whatever. Um, do you worry that there's like significant downsides to the financialization? Like, like are there things that you're like, man, it is inevitable, but we gotta be really, really careful or pay a lot of attention to this aspect of uh, the financialization of Bitcoin? I mean, for, for a while, uh, things can be a bit rocky, um, but I wouldn't be worried long-term. And when I'm thinking about Bitcoin, I'm always thinking long-term. So I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be worried about it. Um, I think they happened to be um, someone early in adopting it maybe, and maybe some other Things will be later, um, you know, like n- nation states, like crypto protocols I talked about. Like there's a bunch of different interests that can find use in Bitcoin. So the institutions were first. That's fine. Uh, they're not going to be the last. So I'm not really worried about it, you know. When you guys think, Joe John, uh, it, of your friends, how many of them have majority of their investments in Bitcoin mm. versus, or, or like maybe just crypto in general, right? Versus they still have stocks, bonds, gold, real estate, whatever. I mean, it depends. There's certainly like a, a distinction between people who are heavy into the space and people who aren't. Of the people who aren't, like spending majority of their time looking at digital assets, whether it's Bitcoin or something else, uh, they still all have, most of them at least have other things too. Um, I would say though that as the price has appreciated, it's become a bigger portion, not only from like a, a notional dollar amount of, hey, this is how much I invested and it's up, but they're starting to allocate more money to it mm. also. So so it, it, they're not rebalancing and also allocating yeah. more to it. Yeah. yeah. John, what about you? 
Yeah, I think people who are in the space, they definitely own it. They probably have a majority of their net worth in it because they understand the asymmetric of it. They're younger. They have all the things that I talk about why I have majority of it. But then people who aren't in the space, no, I don't think they're really investing into crypto, right? They just don't know about it. It's speculative. They're just like, I I don't know. I've seen it gone up. I've seen it draw down 50%. So a lot of them don't. um, But I've definitely had more and more conversations over the last year about I think most Bitcoiners overestimate, like vastly overestimate how many people even know what the hell Bitcoin is. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Like 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 in the the United States. I don't think most people, like the average American knows that the government even prints money. No. That's probably true. (laughs) (laughs) If they did, if everyone knew that there wouldn't be 45% of Americans that had no investable assets. That's my point. It's not a knock against Bitcoin. It's a knock against financial education in general. So I think that if they don't know the baseline kind of stuff that you need to own investable assets, that, you you know, the role that inflation plays in your overall net worth and, and wages and all that kind of stuff, then how are they supposed to understand what Bitcoin is and what it does for you? Now, let me ask you this question. If you went and you asked every single Bitcoiner at the Bitcoin conference to describe, I don't know, we could pick three elements of Bitcoin, describe how proof of work uh, works, describe how nodes work, and describe how Bitcoin as an investment uh, theoretically would work. What percentage of people do you think would uh, have a high degree of proficiency? Yeah, at mean, the conference, which is that's a subjective yeah, term, but yeah, I, I think that... Um, Maybe I'm giving too much credit here, but I would think that the majority of people would at least be able to, to uh, understand it enough to articulate kind of the, the overall process. Uh, but so yeah, you think that, over 50%? Yeah, but to your point, I think that there is certainly a, a portion of people, I don't know if it's 1%, 5%, 10%, 25% or whatever, uh, that are simply interested in Bitcoin because they like the community, they like the memes, they made some money on it, right? And once you make money and it's gone up, you, you start to get more interested. So there's certainly an aspect of that, but I, I think... If you're going to a conference, right, I think that that number is probably higher than you would just see online, but I don't uh, know. So I agree at the conference is higher. My point in saying that is it used to be 100%. Oh, yeah, mm, it's definitely right? not. Because, yeah. because when, it was, yeah. when there was no kind of user experience, user interfaces that made it super simple, you had to be technical, most people understood it. A lot of people actually did a lot of work before they ever even bought Bitcoin. They went and, they, and uh, understood how does the system work. They looked at it from uh, more of a computer science perspective, yeah. whatever. So actually, that percentage is going down. And it will continue over to go down. Trend. Of course, it's going to continue yeah. to go down. But that's the point, is that uh, one of the other aspects of the entire community is that in order to get mainstream adoption, you have to understand that everyone's not going to be the same. Yeah. Right? Like, that's why it's considered mainstream and you were an early adopter. Right? <laughs> it's like, literally, they are different than you. Yeah. They do not spend their time on Twitter and Reddit and, you know, YouTube or whatever, finding out about the next alternative currency. That's not what they do. What yeah. they end up doing is uh, there's going to be a whole portion of people who literally their financial advisor tells them, like, hey, we're going to put 2% in Bitcoin. And they say, why? And they go, because it's good if inflation happens. And they say, okay. And they move on with their day and they don't even think about it. And so I, I just think that uh, understanding the, the the changing nature of the industry and ecosystem is really key to understanding Bitcoin over the next five years because you can't simply just look back and say it was completely non-correlated, it's going to stay non-correlated forever. Well, obviously that's not true for the last two years, right? And then if you look and you say, okay, well, who holds it? I don't think the same people who hold it today held it three, four years ago. Yeah. And so as all yep. these things change, like you got to get comfortable with the change. Like, like yep. it's um, uh, special forces uh, in the U.S. military. They, they think a lot about like comfort and chaos, right? Like mm-hmm. if you can be comfortable in chaos, then you're always in a state of control because you can 
uh, adapt and you can be uh, adaptable to to the changing environment. Well, well, just think about the how the communication has changed, right? If you look back, there's like old message boards of people communicating about Bitcoin. It's like the same 10 people and they're like, oh shit, it went from eight cents to six cents, like six cents to 10 cents. And they're all, you know, communicating back and forth. And now we have uh, Odell CNBC. Beckham Jr. <laughs> taking his salary in Bitcoin and they're announcing it. It's getting, literally one tweet is getting 50 million, 100 million plus impressions. And all these people are learning about it he, maybe for the first time or hearing about it more. He owns an NFT. He's not a real Bitcoin. <laughs> Yeah, well, shameful. Shame. Yeah, shame. Uh, he must own a house too. Yeah. He's a he's a terrible bitcoiner. He's a terrible bitcoiner. Uh, but but I do think that that's. I think that was one of my big takeaways from the conference. Also, was just uh, uh, there's a lot of people who didn't know what Bitcoin was two three years ago. Mm. Awesome. The types of uh, folks are changing. Right when I saw we or I think we were talking about before you got here. When I saw uh, the Apple App Store search ads team was there. Mm. There's a 0% chance they were there in 2016. Yeah. Right. And economic development teams from out of state flying there, trying to convince companies to move. Like it's different. Yeah. And that's not good or bad. I don't think. Right. It, it, it it's probably both. You just got to be comfortable that the world is going to change underneath our feet. And yep. it, actually the people who have the rigid mindset and, and they're not willing to understand that. Well, it's funny because odds uh, are low that uh, they're going to be successful. Bitcoiners obviously want the price to appreciate and more people to adopt it, right? One Bitcoin and, equals one Bitcoin, dude. But you get my point. And, and how do <laughs> you, you Bitcoin? And how do you onboard? To your point earlier, hundreds of millions or billions of people without kind of doing this mainstream education and trying to get more people involved. And every time that you're toxic or you say uh, this industry or this this other crypto or whatever it is is shut out, you can't look at this, you can't do this. You're shutting off potential people that you would potentially yep. onboard into the system. So it's kind of like this this thing where you're only hurting yourself in the end. Uh, everyone wants to know uh, why you have sunglasses on inside. <laughs> and somebody just the, said, the lights he, are so bright. Somebody said he will burn their faces off if he takes them off. His laser eyes. It's I, like uh, the X-Men thing. I yeah. was just looking at your Twitter and I love your pinned tweet. It says, whenever you're not sure what to say, just say metaverse. Yeah. <laughs> I, lost a, I lost a golden opportunity to say it now. It's the answer for the sunglasses question. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually in the metaverse. Yeah. <laughs> All right, last question. And then we got to go is uh, when you think about everything that's transpiring around this, is there uh, a word of caution that you have around any of the industry that you're like, man, I really don't think people understand the risks associated with X. And there's a lot of talk of scams and, and you know, all this stuff. There's obviously a lot of risk in a lot of things. Like what is yeah. the area where you're like, you know, if people pay attention to one thing, uh, they're probably mispricing risk where. I think, you know, one of the, this is like a very long conversation, but one of the things that um, kind of scare me the most, especially with the kind of smaller coins that are usually not in the top 10 or top 20, and they're not even listed on exchanges, and they're only available on these automated market makers like Uniswap, um, they give you this number, and I, I'm not going to get into too many details, but they give you this number, which is like the current price. Uh, but it's it's really it's the current price of the marginal coin that you can sell right now. It's not the the price of all of the coins you might want to sell, and of course not all of the coins that other people hold. Uh, a lot of times you end up, you know, you people look at their blockfolio app or what have you, and they see this number and they say, "Oh, I'm now worth such and such because I own such and such coins." But in reality, this whole thing has maybe a liquidity of one or two million dollars, <laughs> and uh, which is nothing. So you know. 
Um, I would say it's important for people to understand, especially if they're dabbling in these smaller coins, that it's really a game of musical chairs and to really try to understand the dynamics of how they work um, because otherwise they might have a very skewed perception of, of what their portfolio actually is, which, which can be dangerous. Yeah. You guys agree? I yeah. completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, yes. Yeah. That was like a wide-eyed just, It's yes. what we were talking about, the, was it the Squid Game coin or whatever? Where the, oh, wow, or no, yeah. uh, the Shiba, the guy made the trade where he had billions of dollars worth of one of these meme coins, but he couldn't liquidate his money out, right? So it was essentially, it wasn't worthless because he could get something out, but uh, he wasn't getting out the $8 billion or whatever. That, I mean, this is true in the public markets. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it is. It, it happens it in is. a lot of different places, but definitely it's on, st- everything I that think happens in finance retail. is on steroids in, yeah. in the Bitcoin crypto. Yeah, I think small retail investors usually aren't used to seeing it because they don't have the, you know, the, the, the big enough portfolio to move a market like Apple, right? But when you go into a very small market like uh, the <laughs> Squid Game coin, then yeah, you might, you know, with your few thousand dollars, you might actually crash the market. So, <laughs> so yeah. So that's, I think people need to understand those dynamics and many times they don't. I, um, uh, I tend to think that you're more right than wrong. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate your courage and conviction of saying what you believe. Uh, it's interesting that uh, you have to do it in the face of uh, people who want to shame you. So yeah. Yeah. Just well, thanks keep, for having keep, me. Keep the shades on. The haters can't I will. see you. I will. Yeah. I will. <laughs> they don't know who I am. <laughs> I could be anyone. I could be anyone. Uh, we, it's a job comedian. Job's <laughs> <laughs> a comedian on Twitter. <laughs> Anytime you say anything hey, it's a bad funny or wrong, you're like, yeah, I'm a comedian. Yeah. 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 If you yeah, actually, it's just a joke. You didn't get it. So you just if, didn't get it. If yeah. you actually think about it, comedians are the last protected uh, species it's on true. the internet. Is uh, Tim Dillon. He can say anything on the internet. Well, like Chris Rock just got slapped, so maybe it's changing. But yeah, yeah but, he, but he got slapped in person. See, the key is to be a keyboard comedian. As long as you say it on the internet, no one's going to slap you. Yeah. But like That's Tim true. Dillon, literally sometimes he tweets things, and I'm like, man, that is laugh out loud funny. Woo, people are going to be yeah. mad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yeah, he did. That was a good one. He and sure I know he he's typing it up laughing to himself. <laughs> I'm like, sure he had the same thought when he had said. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He's like, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks we'll a lot. have to do this again so when uh, when you don't come back to America after yeah. uh, after you got shamed out of the. Uh, out yes, of, the of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, buddy. See ya. Yep. Appreciate it, Udi. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.